chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. We live, as it were, on an island surrounded by a polluted sea. And the waters of this polluted sea wash against our shores constantly. And there's no way to escape from that, really. The church cannot withdraw and hide behind some monastery. It lives on an island in the midst of a polluted sea. And the pollution of that sea washes against its shores daily. And sometimes the pollution of that polluted sea seeps through the cracks into the life of the church. And there begins to be, even in the purity of the church, the impurity of the polluted sea around them. That's what happened at Corinth. It's the problem that the Apostle Paul deals with. Now I have nobody in mind in particular tonight when I talk about impure life, but God may. There may be some student tonight who has come to some new freedom and that freedom has become heady wine and you've been involved in some impurity right straight from the um, shelter and security of your home and church to a new freedom. That's, that freedom is heady wine and, and you've been involved in some impurity. There may be some businessman tonight who is tempted to compromise in the pressures of maintaining some kind of status in his job. The pressures to compromise are great. There may be some individual here tonight who for all her life or his life has been faithful, but there has been one moment of weakness. Now Paul deals with this kind of thing, this kind of scandal, this kind of problem in the church. And he exposes the problem, which indeed is incest. Now it's amazing, you know, um, how relevant the Bible is. I mean, folks, this is life. Prince, have you heard his record? <laughs> you know, he's the kind of the Michael Jackson of, you know, the modern uh, kind of the clone. He's got a book called, he's got a book. He's got a record out on that record. It says, my sister made love only to me. Incest is everything it's said to be. I mean, this is, this is up-to-date stuff right here. This is life. He exposes the problem and says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Now there are four things, if you're following in the outline, there are four things about the exposure of this disorder in the church. I want you to get these down. The first, it's a sin that is well known. It's not a secret scandal. Now you wonder where I'm going with this. I wanna, I wanna get there in just a minute and I'm gonna tell you where I, where I headed, you know, when I started where I'm going. Uh, it's, a, it's a sin that is well known. I mean, it's the talk of the town. Everybody knows about this sin in the church at Corinth. It's publicly known. It's commonly known. It's well known. It's not something that the Apostle Paul had to dig out somebody. I mean, everybody knew about this thing. 
Secondly, this sin was reported to the Apostle Paul. The word he uses there for reported is the, is the most common word for here. I mean, it was on the grapevine. When folks talked about the church at Corinth, they talked about this problem. Isn't that a tragedy? That some churches are known not for their victories, but their vices. Not known for their power, but their problems. It was so in Corinth. It was on the grapevine. And, and, and the Apostle Paul is not in Corinth, but he's heard about it. For every time somebody talks about the church at Corinth, they use in the same breath this problem that's there. Oh, you're from that church with this problem and names it. Third, it was the sin of fornication. The word is fornia. Now, there are two New Testament words for uh, illicit immorality. One is adultery. It's where both the people involved are married. There's fornication where at least one of the parties is unmarried. The relationship that was illicit that took place was between a young man and his father's wife, probably not his natural mother, but perhaps his stepmother. His father was either dead, divorced from his wife, or he was living and did not or did know about the problem. Now, it was, a, it was the sin of fornication, I mean in the church. Fourth, it was going on at this very time. It was taking place at this very time that this was written. It was a practice in continuous activity. Now, the amazing thing about this whole thing is that it, it says that it was such a sin that even the Gentiles were repulsed by it. Now, you talking about, when you talk about Gentiles, you talk about people who lived in the cesspools. You talking about heathens. And even the Gentiles would not be involved in this. I mean, they looked upon this sin with a repulsion that not even the church did. I found this to be true. I found, I believe it with a deep conviction, that if the church looked upon the sin that goes on in the life of its membership as with the same disdain as the outsider did, does, we'd, make a different, we'd have a different church. Now the response, verse 2. He, he talks about the Corinthian response. He says, and you, and I have that underlined in my testament, I want you to underline it, and you have become arrogant. The word you is the most emphatic um, use of that particular pronoun, and you, you of all people, you of all people, you emphatically have become arrogant. Now, what does he mean by arrogant? He, he's talking about this kind, it's a word it means to puff up with pride. It means that they have become so proud of their liberality, so proud of their open-mindedness, so proud of the fact that God is a gracious God and a forgiving God, and they boast of their liberality, their, their, their um, uh, open-mindedness. They're arrogant about it. Somebody said that you can be open-minded, but not so open-minded that your brains fall out. You know, there's a time and a place to be narrow-minded. 
You don't believe that. You take your prescription tomorrow out to the druggist and you hand him your prescription and, and, and say, here's my prescription for some medicine. And you have that druggist look at you and say, well, I'm pretty open-minded about the drugs I dispense here. We'll just reach up here and just take one off the shelf. The handiest one will fill that prescription like that. You, you're not going to buy, you're not going to go for that. There's a time and a place when dogmatism is not only um, uh, acceptable, it's essential. Now, I want to lay something hard here. I believe it's true. There is a place for liberality and open-mindedness, and there's a place for forgiveness, but there's also a place for dogmatism, and that place is with regard to the life of the church and the practice of the church and the morality of the church. You of all people, he said, are the people that's letting this go on. Secondly, he said, you've not mourned for their sin. You're not brokenhearted about it. Word mourn there means you do not agonize over it. Your heart doesn't break because there's sin. It suggests the indifferent attitude that prevails concerning sin. How long has it been since you've wept over sin? Yours or anybody else's? How long has it been since sin has broken your heart? Yours or anybody else's? How long has it been since you've been at an altar and your heart has just been rent because God has exposed your sin to you? How long has it been since you've mourned over your sin? I, uh, I was sitting up in the bleachers at the, uh, at, uh, the baseball field over there at Arlington, Arlington Stadium. One night, my daughter was with me. She was home on a little trip and and Todd was with me, and Margaret was shopping. I mean, why would you go to a baseball game when you go to the mall? I mean, she was shopping, and we were watching. And, and there was a break in the action between innings. And I heard this little commotion, and I looked around, and this drunk had gotten out of the stands. And he, he just kind of, he, he crawled out of the stands, was out on the field. It was between innings. And he was staggering around there. He, you know, he made Foster Brooks just look like, you know, it was real. And he, he started for second base. And, and it caught everybody was by such surprise that the security guards just, I mean, they just kind of froze. And everybody just kind of, and he staggered, oh, you know, was running kind of and fell flat of his face. He didn't catch himself with his hands. He's kind of dug up the ground with his nose. And he got up and he touched second base and he, set, and he headed for third, just staggering and wobbling and weaving. And everybody was cheering him on, you know. Better not laugh, I'm coming to punchline. They were cheering him on. He got to third, he just kind of tottered on third base, you know. It was like standing on a cliff, you know, and just weaving. And about that time, the security guards came out and hauled him off the field to the booze of the fans. And everybody's just laughing and cheering and booing. And I looked over at my daughter and she was laughing and somehow I said, you know, I just don't feel like laughing about that. I feel like a tear is more appropriate than a smile. It, somehow it just got me there that, that it just was tragic at the heart of tragedy. How long has it been since you've mourned over sin? How long has it been 
since you've wept over the sin in your life or somebody else's. Now Paul's talking about his response. He says in verse three, for I, underline, it's an emphatic word, but he says for me, for I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. Now, now this is Paul's response. He said, I, I, I've, I've got a conviction about this thing, and, and this conviction is not changed even though the Corinthians don't have the same conviction that I have. Now, here was the pastor of this church, and he was saying, even though everybody else in the church has a liberal conviction about what's going on, I have a firm conviction that it's wrong, and I, on my part, am going to stand alone. Sometimes, you know, when you have a conviction, you have to stand alone if you hold that conviction. I hope that when you're establishing college students, I hope when you're establishing your convictions and you're establish, establishing what you really believe is right and wrong, that you don't consider the consensus, that you don't poll the masses. The prophets are the people who have come from the deserts and they have stood alone on their convictions, regardless of whatever anybody else, whether they st anybody else stood with them or not. He says, for me, I've got a conviction about this. Oh, for conviction that will even stand alone against the world, you see. That's what he's talking about. You with me? Man, I can get worked up over this. Verse 4, second thing about his response. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now he uses that term Lord Jesus twice because he's standing on the authority of Christ. I said to my Sunday school class this morning as I translated from John 1, he said, and Jesus came into the world and he was the light of men. Now what that word means, what that phrase means is that Jesus is the measurement by which everything is judged. He is the light of men. He is the basis of all judgment. He is the measurement of all value. He is the light that lights all men. Now the apostle Paul is saying, I'm making my conviction on the basis of Jesus Christ and the judgment that he brings. I'm using him as the measure of judgment. I'm standing on the authority of the church. That's what he's saying. Then he gives some instructions. Now hang right here with me because we're talking about as my granddaddy used to call discipline. Granddaddies have a strange vocabulary. He, discipline. I didn't know that. I thought it was discipline for the most of my life, and I found out it was discipline. But discipline makes, you know, that's not too bad. Now, watch what he says. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved. Now, I don't know whether you have in your New Testament or not that the phrase, I have decided is in italics. Do you have that? Shake your head like that if that's the way. Most everybody's is. Okay, you know why that's in italics? It's not in the original manuscript and it's placed there for clarity. But you know, sometimes the things that are there for clarity are not the clearest. So I want us to kind of take that out. It's not in the original manuscript and I want you to put it with verse four and let it read like this. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, parenthesis, and I with you in spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus to deliver such a one to Satan. 
That's the way it should read. This is something the church is doing. Holy. I don't know why I got into saying holy cow. My wife said, why in the world did you say that? I don't know why I said it. I don't know why I said it then. But look at what. I have decided to deliver such a, well, there's three phrases we need to understand what he's talking about. Look at there. It says, to deliver such a one to Satan. What does that mean? Well, the world, he's talking about excommunication. Are you with me? He's talking about with re removing fellowship from the fellowship. Now, the world is considered the domain of, of, of Satan. As a matter of fact, in 1 John chapter 5, it says that the power of the world lies in the lap of Satan. His domain is the world. Now, what Paul is talking about is this, that when you gather together, when you come together now in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to put him out, that is, remove him from fellowship, from the, from the support fellowship of the church, and you're going to send him out into the world, Satan's domain where he belongs going to deliver him up to Satan. That is, put him out into the world apart from the church. It was in order to humiliate him, to bring him to his senses, discipline, not solely punishment. He was, he was putting him out to the world in order not to break him, but to make him. It was to, it was to be done in the sorrow as though he had died. So when he says, deliver such a one to Satan, he's talking about excommunication. Secondly, for the destruction of the flesh, not the body. Now watch this. Not the body, the flesh. You know what the term, the flesh term in the New Testament refers to? It refers to, to a person who lives his life apart from God. Now watch what he's doing. We're practicing this discipline, he's saying, in order that this, this person who is living his life apart from God, that that lifestyle, that inclination to live one's life apart from God might be destroyed. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the prodigal son. And there came a day when, when this boy came to his dad. He said, I want what's mine. And there came a day when he had to let him go. And he went to the far country for the destruction of the flesh to, to destroy that lifestyle that caused him to want it to live apart from his father. And there in the far country, he came to himself. That's what he's talking about here. Third, in order that his spirit may be saved. Now, he was born again. He's, he wasn't lost. But what, what that means is that his spirit might come again under the control of the Holy Spirit, that his spirit may come back under the dominion of the Holy Spirit. He's given instruction for that particular church. And now he gives instructions in general. Verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now what in the world does that mean? Well, in the New Testament, the term leaven is a picture of sin. You can mark that down and get that. You've got to know that. Leaven is referred to in the New Testament. It, it's an analogy of sin. 
And so leaven in the lump, the lump being the fellowship, the church, the leaven there would affect the whole lump. You guys that make biscuits, you know. You ever made a sourdough bread? If you ever make some, let me know when you're cooking it. I'd like to come and, and check it out, you know, pass judgment on it. I had this ulcer one time, bleeding ulcer, and I was up preaching revival, and a lady said, I'll tell you how to cure an ulcer. Start eating sourdough bread. And she gave me some sourdough bread starter, and I started eating sourdough bread. Looked like a big blimp, you know, just <laughs> cured my ulcer. How did I get off on that? Well, I know that in that lump, there was this live, this, this, this leaven, you know, it, it, it affected the whole thing. It just grew. Now, here's the church. You got this leaven, the principle of sin. Now, he talks about the Passover. Now, watch this. Whenever they would celebrate the Passover, which was the, 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 the time of celebration for the Jew, one of the ceremonies they would perform in the, at the Passover celebration was they would get a candle and they would take this lighted candle and as they ate the pass after they ate the Passover meal they walked through the house every room in the house every corner of the house looking for the just a crumb of leaven looking for the slightest crumb of leaven now now Paul is saying, we have celebrated the Passover. Christ has covered us with his blood and passed over our sin. Now you take the lighted candle and you find out if there's any sin among you. Holy mackerel. Not only is it a reference to what should happen in the church, it is a reference to what should happen in one's own life. Now Christ has cleansed us and has passed over our sin. Now you take the light of his word and you go into every corner of your life and see if you can find one taint of sin. This is serious business, folks, to be a believer. Now follow verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now, who's, this, who's he talking about? He, he helps us to know when he, he says, now, let, don't, don't misunderstand me. I didn't say not, don't have anything to do with lost people. Don't think that he says that. He says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for them you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or idolater or a revival or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Some say that refers to the Lord's Supper. For what, I have, what have I to do with judging outsiders? He said, I'm not talking about lost people. I'm talking about people like this in your church. Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Then in emphatic caps, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now you need to know what the word associate means. Don't associate with them, he said. Word means to mix together. It means fellowship. It means intertwined in purpose and life. Now, he said, if you have that in the fellowship, it's not to be. You know one thing that, that I think that some of us, it just kind of dawns on of us sometime, is that being a member of the church is more serious 
than we count it to be. When you become a part of the fellowship of God, that, my friend, is serious business. Now, there are four applications, and I'll quit. Application number one. Overlooking certain disorder is not gracious, it's dangerous. If you're out camping tomorrow night and a rattlesnake crawls up in your sleeping bag or the sleeping bag of your child, I promise you, you're not going to say, well, we'll let God take care of that. That'd be about the stupidest thing you could say. What you'd do is you'd grab that sleeping bag and you'd do something about that danger. It's not gracious, it's dangerous. Second, rebuking certain disorders is not optional, but essential. Now, God gives us a way to do it. He gives us guidelines. I won't read them, but I, I, I will give you the reference. It's Matthew 18, 15 through 17. So number two is, rebuking certain disorders is not optional, but essential. Number three, dealing with certain disorders is not to be penal, but remedial. That is, it's not to punish somebody. I, I, I promise you, you can read the minutes and the history of this church. I haven't read them, but I've, I know that's true from, from 100 years ago. And I mean, folks got, they got down to, you know, their discipline was, <laughs> they found somebody, you know, standing off at a barn dance somewhere. They turned them in the next morning and gave them an old heave-ho. You know, I mean, it was kind of punishment it's not to be that way. James 5 talks about that you win a sinner from the error of his ways, and it's, it's a believer he's talking about. You save a soul from death, and you cover a multitude of sin. Here's the one I want to finish up with. Correcting certain dishonors, disorders. Correcting certain disorders is not external, but internal. By that I mean it's not my job to correct you. Now, I've got a lot of things I, I, got, I, I do, I've, I'm called to do. Correcting you is not one of them. It's not my job to be a policeman. <laughs> That's your job. It's not my job to cor correct you. That's your job to correct you. Now, I am responsible for you but I'm not responsible for you. Totally. You're responsible for you. And the urgency of this passage is this, that every child of God be sure that it cannot be said of him, he is 11 in the lump. Let's pray together. Father, this is such a delicate and serious discussion and matter, and so I trust 
that your Holy Spirit has been in control. And God, you know that my heart has been that I be totally honest with thy word, with your word. And now the application of this word to us, we leave with you. Because I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now I'm going to ask you to consider three decisions. The first decision is the decision to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. The confrontation with the God of this universe and His Son, Jesus. To say to Him, I am eternally and forever lost and I cannot save myself. And I come in faith to receive forgiveness and salvation and new birth. The second decision is the decision about church membership. The seriousness of this. I used to like to count, you know, how many people join the church. I can honestly say that that's not a big deal with me anymore, except that I want people who are serious about what God is about here. And when they believe this is where God wants them, I want them here. The third decision I'll ask you to make, the decision concerning your own personal walk with God, your own life. Take the candle of God's Word. Go to every corner of your life tonight. I challenge you. Be honest with God and yourself. Now those are the decisions I'll ask you to make. As we sing together a hymn of invitation, wherever He leads, I'll go. And